Hello, my old friend, and welcome back to Renegade Files, where we apply genuine curiosity and deep research to explore the strange and unexplained world of the paranormal, the extraterrestrial, and the conspiratorial. I'm your guide, Lex Gordon, broadcasting a pirate radio signal from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 24, Ancient Aliens, Theories and Evidence. This episode is a big one, and it's been in the works for a while, but it's finally here, and we get to dive deep into one of the coolest subjects of the paranormal researcher's world. The idea of ancient aliens has been popularized by the History Channel TV series, but the concepts and theories this show explores have been around much longer. In this episode, we'll explore some of the most intriguing evidence and artifacts in support of the notion that aliens from other planets visited ancient Earthlings and gifted them technologies that helped advance the human race. Is such a thing even possible? Yes, it is. We'll travel across the globe in search of clues to our ancient visitors. We'll comb through the dusty books and clay tablets from scribes of old who documented such things as UFOs, alien kings, and stories about gifts from outer space. And we'll wind our way through the interconnected interpretations that support the ancient alien hypothesis with some of our old friends like Eric Von Daniken, Giorgio Tsoukalos, and Zachariah Sitchin. Many of the clues in ancient aliens are to be found in hieroglyphics, cuneiform tablets, Native American petroglyphs, and legends chanted by shamans. This search takes us on a heroic adventure into desert pyramids, jungle temples, and hidden valleys. So join me, your intrepid guide, Lex Gordon, and together we'll mount an expedition into the theories and evidence that point toward the existence of ancient aliens. Ancient aliens. Ancient aliens. 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 Evidence of ancient flight. The Saqqara Bird. The Steppe Pyramid in Saqqara is one of Egypt's oldest pyramids. Saqqara is home to so many ancient burial sites that it's called the City of the Dead. In Saqqara, in 1891, French archaeologists discovered the tomb of Padi Emen, who lived around 300 BC. Among the burial artifacts was a wooden carving that has come to be known as the Saqqara Bird. This carved figure has aerodynamically sound wings and a vertical tail rudder like a plane. Wind tunnel tests confirmed that the wings of the Saqqara Bird produce four times the object's weight of lift, so it will absolutely fly. The Saqqara Bird only lacks a horizontal tail stabilizer to be a fully flying model of a plane and the vertical tail section does have slots that may well have been the anchor points to exactly this feature. A part that could have been broken off at some point in the carving's history. It is, after all, 2300 years old. For an in-depth analysis of the pyramids and the staggering precision artifacts attributed to the Old Kingdom of Egypt, listen to Renegade Files episode number 2, The Great Pyramid at Giza, and episode number 13, Ancient Advanced Technology, which are part 1 and 2 of our Egypt series. 
the Sakara bird sat in the Cairo Museum for decades, going largely ignored, where it was displayed among several other bird carvings from ancient Egypt. But in 1969, Egyptologist Dr. Khalil Masia noticed how different the dimensions and design of the Saqqara bird was when compared to the more biological-looking bird figures from the time period. The wings are carved with flat bottoms but curved tops, and the central edges against the figure's body are the thickest, with the thickness of both wings tapering down to thinner widths at each end. This design creates lift because the air passing over the curved and therefore longer spans of the wingtops must travel faster than the air passing under the flat, more direct spans of the wing bottoms to meet at the backs of the wings, which it naturally does because nature abhors a vacuum. The faster moving air applies less pressure to the top of the wing and the slower moving air exerts more pressure upon the bottom of the wing. This is called lift. And that, boys and girls, is how and why planes fly. Unlike birds, planes have fixed wings, so this feature is critical to the aerodynamics of a plane and not a bird. At the same time, the Saqqara bird has a vertical tail, which we call a rudder, and no bird has that either. In 2006, engineer Simon Sanderson built a 5x scale model of the Saqqara bird. His tests concluded that the Saqqara bird is a highly advanced glider shape, as efficient as the glider designs we use today. Ancient Egyptians could have used a catapult to launch such a glider. People use large bungee cords and similar slingshot methods to launch some gliders today. Ancient alien theorists suggest that if the ancient Egyptians had the knowledge to construct an object that could fly, they must have been given this knowledge by extraterrestrials. That may or may not be true, but the Saqqara bird could have, and still can, fly, and the Egyptians made it thousands of years ago. The Saqqara bird was also found with a papyrus scroll. When that scroll was translated, one of the messages read, quote, I want to fly. And I think that what we're going to do is take each of the clues we find in this episode one by one. So as for this one, it's amazing. If the ancient Egyptians built a model plane that could fly, then they must have understood the dynamics of lift and aerodynamic design. It's highly unlikely that someone just carved this plane by accident and in the process of trying to make some cool looking bird actually created and designed a functioning glider. They must have understood flight dynamics and made this object by design. That in and of itself necessitates a rewriting of the entire technological understanding of ancient Egypt, as do many discoveries. But it doesn't mean that aliens visited the ancient Egyptians. Doesn't mean they didn't, but it could just be that the ancient Egyptians benefited by a highly advanced civilization that far preceded them, alien, earthling, or otherwise, or that the ancient Egyptians were simply more technologically advanced than we give them credit for. The Gold Flyers In the dense jungles of Colombia, some 7,000 miles from the tombs of Egypt, we find equally ancient archaeological sites. In the early 1900s, treasure hunters searching for El Dorado, the lost city of gold, found a burial site that dated back some 1,500 years. 
at this location along the Magdalena River, these explorers found hundreds of pre-Columbian gold statuettes from two to six inches long. Among them, there were 12 that resembled our modern space shuttles. They have come to be known as the Gold Flyers. Mainstream archaeologists suggest that the Gold Flyers are meant to be figurines of bees, but the Gold Flyers have their wings on the bottom of their bodies like a fighter jet or a space shuttle. Bees have their wings on the tops or backs of their bodies, as do all flying insects. In 1997, German aviation engineers made a scale model of the gold flyers and, once again, as with the Egyptian Saqqara bird, the gold flyer model flew. The situation is that we have two artifacts from very different locations and ancient time periods in our history that have been proven through applied science to be fully functioning aircraft from thousands of years ago. As interesting as it may be, though, it doesn't mean that aliens visited the Earth in those ancient times. But as I said before, it doesn't mean that they didn't. But if anything, it seems to point to ancient civilization being far more technologically advanced than we typically imagine. The reason I included these artifacts in the beginning of the episode is because we have to first make the mental leap that ancient technology was something beyond what we have learned in the mainstream history books. If alternative research concludes that ancient Egyptians and pre-Columbian South Americans could fly, then we have successfully done just that. And this revelation is the first stepping stone toward the ancient alien hypothesis. beyond birds. The next step is evidence of visitation from off-world beings. Much like our ancient flying machines, the first documented stories that can be interpreted as ancient aliens visiting Earth comes to us from two different civilizations who have given us essentially the same remarkable story. The first comes to us from Mali in Northwest Africa. In this country, there is a remote valley inhabited by the Dogon people who are known to have descended from a nomadic tribe that arrived in this location around 1000 AD. Of interest is the Dogon mythology of Ama, the sky god, who they say created the first human. Their legend then contends that the first humans divided into several factions and that one of these groups rebelled against Amma under the leadership of the rebel king Namo. Amma fought back and destroyed the rebellious leader Namo and scattered his ashes across the earth. According to the Dogon beliefs, Amma descended from the sky surfing on fire and landed in a storm. To this day, the Dogon celebrate an annual festival to commemorate this landing, and at this festival, the Dogon wear ancient wooden masks with large heads, huge eyes, and they wear stilts to mimic the giant stature of these sky gods. Ancient alien proponents observe that Amma descending from the sky, surfing on fire, and landing in a storm sounds suspiciously like a spaceship landing with fiery propulsion and causing the attendant uproar of dust and wind. The mask-wearing dancers of the Dogon people tell the story of Amma embracing the universe. And here we begin to see the parallels between the legend of Amma and the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. 
Akhenaten claimed direct descendant from the sun god Aten. So both the Dogon and the Egyptians have earthly kings who are said to have been descendants of sky gods who came here from the heavens. Interestingly, both of these figures, Namo and Akhenaten, are depicted as having large eyes and elongated skulls. But the similarities don't stop there. In the 1920s, a French anthropologist named Griel visited the Dogon tribe and learned that the Dogon say their god Ama came from a star in the constellation of Sirius. This is the same celestial location where the ancient Egyptians say their god Osiris was born. This star, which modern scientists refer to as Sirius B, is depicted in its correct position on the celestial maps of both the ancient Egyptians and the Dogon elders. The fascinating thing is that this star cannot be seen with the naked eye from Earth. Sirius is the second nearest star to our solar system. It's eight light years away. It was only first observed by modern scientists in the 1970s. One of the Dogon people's holy artifacts is a model of the orbits of the stars Sirius A and B, which the Hubble telescope confirmed as being exactly accurate in 2003. The Dogon tribe maintains that the first such model of these stars was given to their tribal shaman in ancient times by Ama himself. The assumption is, then, that this sky god Ama was in fact an extraterrestrial visitor. One could then say the same thing about the Egyptian god Osiris. The laughable explanation given to us by modern anthropologists is that the Dogon tribe must have overheard a modern astronomer describing the relationship between the stars Sirius A and Sirius B and then incorporated that into their religion. Giorgio Suclis himself immediately dismissed this idea because, as Giorgio points out, the records of the Dogon tribe describing these two stars go back hundreds of years before any astronomer not only knew about the second Sirius star, but hundreds of years before any of these scientists could ever have possibly visited the Dogon tribe with this knowledge. This is the kind of desperate, grasping at straws we so often find among mainstream academia when they paint themselves into an intellectual corner, then must devise fantasies to support their established positions. But let's play along just for a second and assume that the Dogon tribe overheard one of the many scientists that must have been trampling along through that remote valley in Africa's Mali Plateau, presumably on vacation, and all the while talking about the astronomical discovery of Sirius B in the 1970s. And let's pretend that this is how the star maps and the legend of their chief god's home star system were added into their history. Then what about the ancient Egyptians and their claim that their god Osiris was from the same star system? Once again, I have to say, thank you, professor. Now that was a sarcastic thank you, but I will say a sincere thank you to you if you are a Renegade Files agent on Patreon. It helps me do the show, and it keeps it ad-free. Thank you so much. The Cradle of Civilization 
now we travel through the desert to the very cradle of human civilization. In ancient Mesopotamia, the Sumerians built multiple cities along the fertile banks between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This area is between modern-day Syria and Turkey. The Sumerians established a system of trade between their cities and each had its own leaders, merchants, and local gods. The Sumerian culture single-handedly advanced the human experience by leaps and bounds through their many inventions. Sumerian clay tablets dating to 3500 BC contain what is widely acknowledged as, if not the first writing, a contemporary of the earliest forms of the written word. The Sumerians are also credited as having invented the wheel, arithmetic, geometry, irrigation, countless tools, armor, the city-state, and perhaps most importantly, beer. In fact, one of their earliest written records is a recipe for beer. All of this 500 to 1,000 years ahead of the first dynastic pharaohs of Egypt and their celebrated achievements. Cuneiform is dazzlingly complicated to read. As a writer who's also a proud freakazoid, I've studied cuneiform and other ancient languages for many years. One of the things that makes cuneiform so challenging is that it lacks much distinguishing variation. In short, the symbols are all made up of combinations of the same mark, a short straight line with an inverted triangle on one end. This is a function of the wooden stylus wedge used to push into the soft clay to form the symbols. Each symbol is made up of combinations of horizontal marks, vertical marks, and 45 degree angle marks. These combinations are used to form symbols that represent individual syllables or sounds. So you read the syllables in order and in this way you form the words. There are only two vowels, and that's vowels as we understand them, but the gist of it is in cuneiform there are two vowels, A and E. One or the other of these two vowels appears in every symbol, either before or after the hard sound. For example, the cuneiform symbol for R can be written to make the sound RA or RA or AR, R. And the symbol for L can be either LE or LE or EL, L. You might think that the two symbols for these pairs, say RA and AR, would look similar or maybe be mirror images in some way, but they aren't. They are utterly different in every case. Incredibly so. This might sound like a contradiction to my assertion that cuneiform all looks the same, but taken as a whole, it does. Because even the wildly differing symbols for RA and AR are still only made up of one mark. But with these combination of symbols representing sounds, the ancient Sumerians could phonetically spell out all the words in their language, and they were off to the races. So the symbol for chair would be identical to the first three symbols that make up the word chariot, but strictly speaking, this example isn't literally true because the syllables of cuneiform form Sumerian words, not English words. So you have to first know not only the meanings and contexts of the Sumerian language, but also how the language sounded. The reason this is important to our investigation is that the interpretations of cuneiform tablets from four or 5,000 years ago have formed much of the basis for the ancient alien hypothesis. 
If you're interested in learning more about cuneiform, I recommend two books. First, Sumerian Lexicon by John Allen Halloran, and second, Reading the Past by J.T. Hooker et al. And let's hope we don't break Amazon with the flood of traffic that that generates. So, alternative researcher and author Zachariah Sitchin was, if nothing else, intelligent and creative. He studied ancient writings and interpreted hundreds of cuneiform tablets, and in doing so, he outlined a history of the Sumerians that included their understanding of our solar system and beyond, and their evolution traced back to their ancient progenitors. And now, we depart from the comfortable world of the normal. Fasten your seatbelts and hang on because this is where we dive deep into some seriously fringe analytics that have been roundly criticized by mainstream science since Zacharias Sitchin penned his first book, The Twelfth Planet, in 1976. Sitchin has been accused of everything from propagating pseudoscience to selective reporting, but the main criticism of his works falls into the category of literalism of myth. The funny thing is that Sitchin fully embraced the literalism of myth criticism and he turned the argument back toward these detractors by essentially saying that they were mythalizing literalism. This is kind of a roundabout way of saying that they sort of accused him of taking the mythological stories of the Sumerians at face value and he in turn accused them of taking the literal stories and turning them into myths. So either way, the summation of what Zacharias Sitchin's collected works tells us is that the Sumerian gods, the Anunnaki, were humanoid extraterrestrials from a 12th planet. That is, if we count the Earth's moon and sun as planets 10 and 11, and back when Pluto was a planet. Pluto is a planet. Don't believe the hype. But the Anunnaki hailed from this 12th planet called Nibiru, and Nibiru is the same planet that has been called Planet X. Nibiru has a very long oval-shaped orbit, and it is said to pass around the sun and in close contact with Earth and the local solar system once every 3,600 years or so. There are many reasons why such a long elliptical orbiting planet could not support life as we know it, but for now we'll stick with Stitchin to let him finish his story because it's a good one. I will say that some of the cuneiform texts describe Nibiru as a gateway and a portal, and it could be that Sitchin just assumed it was a planet because it passes the Earth and Sun every few thousand years. If it's anything at all, it might be something wildly different than a planet. Wouldn't it be funny if all the astronomers who threw shade on Sitchin's translation of Nibiru as an elongating, orbiting planet turned out to be right and that Sitchin was in total error, but only because Nibiru isn't a planet at all but an intergalactic space-time wormhole portal that the Anunnaki used to jump onto Earth every 3,600 years? We can hope. So, back to the tablets. According to Sitchin's translations of the ancient texts, the Anunnaki came to Earth 400,000 years ago on a mission to mine gold to help repair their home planet's atmosphere. Once here, they found the work of mining gold so tedious that they hybridized their own genetics and that of the native primitives somewhere between Homo bodensis and Neanderthals to hybridize the Homo sapiens we are today. These newly minted humans were to be used as slave labor to mine the gold the Anunnaki needed. 
And remember, we're talking 400,000 years ago. The Anunnaki had set their leaders to be earthly kings in several Mesopotamian cities, and they established systems of governance as well as agriculture in order to feed and grow the population to have more gold diggers, as it were. But at some point in the process, one of these Anunnaki extraterrestrial kings rebelled against the main guy and things went sideways. At the same time, these homo sapiens slaves were rebellious and unruly and the whole operation became unmanageable and the original space-traveling Anunnaki left to return to their home planet, but with the promise to come back and check on their earthly children sometime soon. Now, soon to the Anunnaki might be a long time because according to one cuneiform tablet, the list of kings, some of these rulers lived for thousands of years, even tens of thousands of years. It's interesting that the Egyptians said the same things about some of their ancient leaders. And here we come to the main point of contention between what Zechariah Sitchin deduced from the Sumerian tablets and what mainstream historians believe. That is, the fact that mainstream archaeology and anthropology experts interpret the writings of the Sumerian as factual for everything they recorded except the stories of the Anunnaki coming from space. Mainstream historians admit that the Sumerians and their cuneiform scribes were hardly involved in writing fiction, ever. Everything they write seems to be very pragmatic descriptions of events and places. Many of the cuneiform tablets are receipts for goods bought and sold, descriptions of land arrangements between farmers and city-states they lived in, and detailed descriptions of trade and travel routes between certain territories where trade and travel was common. But then, when we come to the stories of the Anunnaki written by these same people, the historians change their tunes and say that all of that is myth. So the Anunnaki, being visitors from space who bred with humans and created the prince-level offspring who became earthly rulers, this is just a fairy tale of fiction created to describe their gods, but everything else they ever wrote was factual. So the 30,000 tablets discovered in one archive are all factual, and the seven included in that pile that described beings from space bringing technology and genetically modifying earthlings, those seven are fiction. We'll get to those seven tablets coming up, so stay tuned. This is interesting because it brings us to a point where we, as esoteric subject explorers, have found ourselves many times before. The point where something that has been written off as myth by the mainstream starts to reach a period of critical mass and the evidence then tumbles in to support the realism of some previously marginalized idea. One example I've used before is Area 51. Long thought to be a conspiracy theorist daydream until it was acknowledged as being a fact after a CIA document was accidentally released confirming the base. In the case of Sumeria and the Anunnaki, one legend that has spilled forth into reality is that of the Sumerian capital city of Ur, and that's U-R. Ur is the legendary biblical home of Abraham. In the mid-1850s, the British Museum led an excavation after the city was discovered by explorers who had found clay bricks in the area that were stamped with ancient symbols. 
by the time they were done, they had unearthed an entire city, complete with an enormous brick structure called the Ziggurat of Ur, which dates to the Bronze Age, so 3000 BC, somewhere around there. It was filled with cuneiform tablets, the administrative seals and texts of centuries of Sumerian leaders, and documentation describing the Ziggurat of Ur as being rebuilt many times all the way up to 600 BC. This pyramid-sized structure also housed many rooms with walls made of solid gold. It was the center of what they discovered and slowly unearthed to be an enormous city, a city that had long been believed to be nothing more than myth, the biblical home of Abraham, a city from antiquity that housed the seat of government for the Sumerians in the times of the Anunnaki, with a main fortification that had rooms made of gold, legendary times indeed and now here it was in brick and stone and gleaming gold just like the accounts described it just like the scholars contended for generations to be myth and proven to be not only factual but still intact under centuries of sand so the texts in this city also describe the Anunnaki the Sumerian kingly gods as having descended to earth from the heavens. The Anunnaki are described as having deep knowledge of the sciences, arts, philosophies, and the practical advances of civilization such as architecture, agriculture, irrigation, and the arrangements of city-state governments, which all helped the populations of ancient Sumeria to thrive. Mainstream science still struggles and debates over how these advances could have emerged in Mesopotamia in such a short period of time right out of the Stone Age. In 1849, British explorer Austin Henry Laird mounted an expedition to explore the eastern banks of the Tigris River on horseback. Awesome. He discovered the ruined biblical city of Nineveh, and the palaces of Sennacherib and later the palace of Sennacherib's grandson. I mentioned earlier that we would get to those creation tablets and here we are. Within these palace archives, Laird uncovered tens of thousands of cuneiform tablets, seven of which described the creation of human civilization and the world, the Enuma Elish. These tablets describe an Anunnaki guide named Marduk, who took the blood of another god, Kingu, mixed it with clay from the earth, and created the first humans. This is a mirror of the creation of Adam we find in the Christian religion. One team translated the word Anunnaki as meaning, from heaven to earth they came. These ancient texts can be read to convey stories of flesh and blood beings who descended from the skies to breed with earthlings while at the same time bestow gifts of knowledge that advanced the Sumerians light years into the future, pulled them out of the Stone Age, and helped them create a civilization that became the model for much of what we have today. This story of extraterrestrial visitors helping primitive humans and fostering their leap into organized technical civilization is mirrored in the Bible in the stories of the Nephilim. We also covered the Nephilim in Renegade Files episode 20, The Forbidden History of Giants. Be sure to give it a listen or share it with a friend. That's episode 20, The Forbidden History of Giants. 
beyond the Sumerians, the Egyptians also tell us that their societies were visited by beings from the same far reaches of stars and that many of their ancestors were kings from space. Taken as a whole, these ancient accounts of extraterrestrials visiting Earth and granting us new tech and understanding paint a pretty cohesive picture. All of this seems to have happened around the same time periods in multiple places, Egypt, Mesopotamia, South America, and Africa. Time and time again we have stories of visitors from the sky who traveled in chariots of fire, flying discs, or starships. They always find our earthly women attractive and their progeny are twice blessed because they are not only long-lived but they have the hybrid vigor of alien-human DNA. Ancient alien theorists contend that the missing DNA link between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens can be accounted for by this injection of alien genes which cause the leap in appearance, intelligence, and self-awareness we find ourselves in possession of today. So in order to believe that life as we know it, or similar to how we understand it, exists outside of Earth, we need to only glance at some numbers. One sun in our solar system, which is one of one billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and estimates put the number of galaxies in the known universe at about 100 billion. And by all accounts, our 100 billion star galaxy is by far not the largest. It's not even average in size. More stars in our galaxy than all the grains of sand on all the world's beaches, and a hundred billion such galaxies in the universe, and most of those much larger than ours. The idea that our planet is the only one to ever create life is juvenile. So where is all of the life that should be teeming across the universe? Well. In addition to large, indeed vast, numbers of stars and planets, we are also dealing with great distances. It's about 4.37 light years to the next closest star system to ours, Alpha Centauri. So it takes light almost four and a half years to go from here to there. That's 1.34 parsecs. It would take the Voyager spacecraft 40,000 years to get there. And that's the closest star system to ours. So it is quite conceivable that there are planets with life on them around Alpha Centauri and we would never know. We may be able to send and receive radio signals to them, but how do we know they even use radios like we do? And when you're talking about a 40,000 year trip to the closest planets from us, and then you remember that there are a hundred billion such star systems in our one galaxy, and 100 billion galaxies with many more stars than ours across the universe, you start to barely grasp the distances involved. They don't call it space for nothing. There's a lot of it. It is vast beyond our comprehension. But, right in our own backyard, we have Mars, and that has liquid water, at least at one point, and has an atmosphere today. The atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide, and it's super cold, like negative 80 degrees. I thought carbon dioxide made the atmosphere hotter. Weird. 
Anyway, in the mid-1980s, a team of scientists discovered a Martian meteorite that landed in Antarctica, and I can just see the boys in Antarctica. There's not enough life on this ice cube to fill a space cruiser. Sensors are placed. I'm going back. Right. I'll see you shortly. There's a meteorite that hit the ground near here. I want to check it out. It won't take long. So about 10 years later in 1996, a team from NASA was studying the Martian meteorite found in Antarctica when they discovered that it contained what they determined to be traces of life. The four-pound meteorite, known as ALH84001, showed the presence of carbonate globules and chain structures that resembled microscopic worms that had presumably been living on Mars 1.6 billion years ago. Now, this isn't as romantic as alien greys landing on a farm and saying, Take me to your leader. But it's still revolutionary. At the time, the story made headlines and even prompted President Bill Clinton to make a formal TV announcement about the event. I remember it. It is suggested that the life forms could have become fossilized on the meteorite once it landed on Earth, but the extreme small size of the life forms so small as to still be classified as theoretical nanobacteria, is well smaller than any cellular life we knew about prior to this discovery. This is important because it indicates life, as small as it may be, occurring outside of Earth, and that opens up a myriad of possibilities moving forward. When we start to look at microbiology in terms of life in outer space, we arrive at an interpretation of extraterrestrial life seeding Earth from a totally different viewpoint. The idea that the building blocks of life arrived at Earth on a meteorite loaded with bacteria and it evolved into the diversity we see today is cool but it's hardly the romantic notions of Anunnaki space kings hooking up with Earth chicks. However, as we pour over ancient writings from across the world, we begin to discover compelling similarities when it comes to the stories of heavenly beings. The angels of European mythology dating back to medieval Christians and before. Quetzalcoatl, the flying serpent god of the Aztecs in Central America. The star people of the Native Americans the Greek gods who descended from heaven to live on Mount Olympus. Ancient Chinese documents from 2000 BC tell us that the figure they call the Yellow Emperor was riding through the skies on a fiery dragon when he saw the people of Earth were in need. He descended to Earth, ruled for over 100 years, and was the ancestor of future emperors. After his 100-year rule, having helped the people lift themselves to new levels of technology and prosperity, he called for the return of his dragon. The ancient texts tell us that the Yellow Emperor, along with several members of his staff, boarded inside the dragon, which flew away at a great speed and vanished from Earth. Over and over again, we find that superhuman beings descended from the skies to live among and affect the lives of those on Earth. It's a consistent theme among all of the world's creation myths and religious teachings. And these mythological accounts that, when interpreted as historical events, are just those cases that have been documented. 
So while they're still mysterious because the documentation is open to interpretation, there are other ancient astronaut theories from sources that lack these ancient text counterparts and are therefore an even greater mystery. The main one being the Nazca Lines. The high alluvial plains of Nazca in Peru possess a very unique climate. It essentially never rains there. Never. But the air is very humid and when the cool nights transition into the warm mornings, a heavy amount of dew settles on this arid terrain. The Nazca lines are large-scale earthwork designs that are simple line drawings that show stylized objects like birds, monkeys, people, and geometric patterns like spirals and mazes. Some are very long, perfectly straight, wide, flat panels that look like roads to nowhere or runways. The lines were made in the early centuries BC and newly discovered lines are older still. The Nazca lines were created by digging away the oxidized reddish-brown surface gravel and rocks to reveal the lighter-colored yellowish subsoil. The soil composition contains high amounts of volcanic glass and quartz ground into fine particles over millennia. Most Nazca lines are between 12 inches and a few feet wide and about 6 inches deep. These depressions collect the heavy dewfalls each morning, then this moisture slowly evaporates with the sunrise. Over centuries, this process hardens the dusty volcanic glass and quartz components of the soil to create a form of natural concrete. The lack of rain prevents watershed erosion from destroying these glyphs, and so they last for centuries. In fact, they get stronger and more resilient as time passes. So unlike ancient artifacts such as the pyramids at Giza, we know how these lines and designs were made. But why the ancient Nazca people created these lines is hotly debated. Some think they were used to locate groundwater. That seems a bit of a stretch to me. Groundwater markers need not be 400 foot tall monkeys. Some mainstream scientists say they were made to signal the Nazca people's gods, and this leads us into ancient alien territory. Eric von Daniken has written extensively on the subject of the Nazca lines. His theories include ancient alien landing sites or glyphs made to communicate with the aliens as they passed overhead. One idea is that ancient aliens visited the area in the distant past and the glyphs were created to compel the aliens to return. It is fascinating to see the lines from high above, from a plane or a drone camera, and wonder for whom were these lines created? Because the Nazca people who made them would have never been able to properly see the designs themselves that we know of. And the Nazca Lines aren't the only such puzzling ancient geoglyphs discovered. Almost directly on the opposite side of the Earth from Nazca, in October of 2015, NASA discovered similar designs on the rugged terrain floors of Turgay, Kazakhstan. The NASA scientists found 200 geoglyphs using satellite photography. 
the Kazakhstan geoglyphs are precise geometrical patterns like perfect squares and X's made up of dots, created not by etching into gravel like the Nazca lines, but by building huge earthwork mounds and trenches in a more three-dimensional structure. Local archaeologists and historians in Kazakhstan have no explanation for who made these designs or why, but they have dated their creation to 6000 BC. These Kazakhstan geoglyphs dating to 8000 years ago puts the ancient in ancient aliens for sure. It also places their creation in the same time frame as the newly discovered Superhenge, which is an enormous arrangement of giant stone pillars that were positioned to form a circle and then purposefully buried under an earthen ring in the countryside of England, in the same area where Stonehenge is. As you can see, this is an immense subject and we will probably revisit it in a future episode so we can dive even deeper because the concepts and discoveries that align with the ancient alien hypothesis are virtually endless. We never even got to those insanely convincing Egyptian hieroglyphs that seem to show Black Hawk helicopters and 747 jumbo jets. You may have seen those. Or the incredibly accurate ancient maps and star charts found among some other documents dating thousands of years back. There's a lot going on here. I think it's a subject we can come back to again someday, so let's just agree to do that. My summary. In a way, the search for ancient aliens is a search for our own past, a search for our place in the universe. It's a search for our celestial kin. It's a hopeful hypothesis because it frames alien visitors as generally helpful and concerned with our earthly well-being. As for Zacharias Sitchin, he weaves a compelling interpretation of the Sumerian history and he ties it in with both the Bible and ancient Egyptian myth as well. The story he derives is the basis for most of what we know as ancient alien theory today, his and Eric Von Daniken's. But many of the translations Sitchin uses to craft his theories have been criticized by other anthropologists and linguistic experts. For example, Sitchin translates the Sumerian cuneiform word for god, Dingir, to have the phonetic literal meaning of pure ones of the blazing rockets. At first glance, this seems to support the ancient astronaut hypothesis. But knowing what we do about cuneiform, we quickly realize that for this definition to be accurate, the ancient Sumerians would have had to have a word for rocket, which they did not. It's possible that they did mean people from spaceships, as Sitchin implies, and that Sitchin translated their word for whatever vehicles the original Anunnaki traveled in as rockets because that was Sitchin's frame of space travel reference at the time. And here we reveal the essential problem inherent in all translation. Various words have various meanings across languages and pure translation is rare if it is even possible at all. But Sitchin may be seeing what is truly in these texts. It has been said that genius is looking at something thousands of people have looked at but seeing what no one else has seen. But it isn't just Sitchin's translations of the Sumerian tales of the Anunnaki. We have the Chinese, we have the Christian angels, the Aztec space serpents, 
the Native American star people, the Greek gods descending to Olympus. Across all cultures and deep into ancient history, we find similar stories of beings from space coming to Earth. Even the most materialistic astronomer will tell you that every molecule in every human being's body was once a molecule within a star. The ancient alien hypothesis postulates that deep in our historic past, an advanced race of alien beings visited our planet and helped us evolve. Is such a thing even possible? Yes, it is. Let's end with one last quote from Giorgio Sugulis. Quote, There is one common denominator in all of these stories of extraterrestrials visiting us in the remote past, and that is their promise of a return. How can we prepare for this return of those extraterrestrials in the future? It's very simple. Number one, accept the idea that we are not alone in the universe. And number two, that they were here in the past, that they will return in the future, and that, hey, it's okay. That's Renegade Files Episode 24, Ancient Aliens, Theories and Evidence, and man, was that fun or what? We have just scratched the surface here, and there's a lot to explore on this topic. Some of the more fringe, if you can believe that, subject matter in the ancient alien arena are the topics of multiple bonus episodes I'm posting for the RFA agents on Patreon, so if you've ever thought about joining us there, now is a good time. On Patreon, you also get bonus episodes, tons of paranormal content, MP3s of the background music used in the shows, and you can interact with me and other Renegade Files fans on a secure private platform that also helps me make the episodes and deliver them to you without ads. Thanks for going on the Ancient Alien Ride with me today. I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, hooligan child.
Take me to your 